Hey, everybody. As we announced last week, we hooked up with Foundation showrunner David Esquire to talk about the show's first season. Um, and I, I was really impressed with the interview. I thought it went really well. Uh, yeah, I did too, except there was some commotion outside my window, so I had to mute myself half the time, which sucked because I wanted to jump in and say some things, but eh, I figured out what quality is. Was, was there civil unrest against the clone empire of, uh, of uh, Jones the 13th? There or was, and they were coming at me with lawnmower <laughs> blades, so... <laughs> I hope you swiftly put them down. Uh, but yeah, we, we got so many questions from you uh, guys and gals. I was actually blown away. It's more than we could get to, even if we got through a question and answer like every every minute for a full hour. Because uh, you know, David gave us really thoughtful, thorough answers. You know, like like in depth, and that uh, limits the amount of questions you can get at. But I don't know about you. I kind of prefer that. I'd prefer going in deep on topics rather than just doing a shallow yeah. take it a whole breadth of them. So sure. Uh, Thanks to David once again for being generous with his time. Thanks to also his assistant Tyler for helping us get the talk all set up, making sure everything went great. And thanks to all you who sent in the questions. It seems like we're going to be able to get Mr. Goyer back on to wrap up the season once it's over. And I'm already looking forward to it. So without further ado, please respect and enjoy the interview. Uh, so David, you know, we, we, we talked about this a little bit in the, the pre-interview, but this is kind of like one of the last unfilmable science fiction book concepts. Like they've kind of fallen one by one, Lord of the Rings, like, you know, Dene Villeneuve has taken on uh, Dune right Wait, now. Villeneuve. I think it's Villeneuve. I, 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 I'm a famous mush mouth and I struggle with pronunciation. Yeah. So I, I've had a couple of French and French Canadian people connect me and I just kind of, yeah, uh, it's like my cursive signature. It's just a gesture towards it. Right. Uh, I was wondering, like, you know, so you're tackling this unfilmable project. Was there yeah. like a, a, a single moment or idea that you had that made you think this is the thing that's going to crack this thing open? And then conversely, was there ever like in the production a moment doubt like, oh, crap, we bit off more than we can chew? <sighs> yes. I mean, it's, it's interesting because we like I started this project four years ago. Uh, and because COVID obviously added a year to it. And so in some cases, doing, doing these podcasts or interviews after the fact, thinking about going back to when we were writing, I'm literally having to think back three years ago or whatnot to, you know, but, but I think that there, there were, um, I, I think in terms of initially cracking it, there, there were two big ideas. One I can talk about, one I can't because it hasn't been revealed yet. But, um, but the, the genetic dynasty was the first big one, and that was the first big aha experience that <clears throat> Josh Friedman, who wrote the first two episodes with me, that we had fairly early in and maybe a week or so into it. Because we were just trying to figure out, I think the two biggest issues with Asimov's first book uh, are obvious, the, the fact that it's very anthological and, and that so much happens off stage or off screen. And, and we, I talked about this in the AMA that I did, but, but there was no version of anyone, any of the buyers doing an anthological version of the show that just was never going. In fact, they said outright, we won't. So don't even bother pitching a version of that. Uh, because I, you know, in the wake of black mirror, which I love, there were just all of these anthological shows that sprung up, some of which have come out, some of which haven't, but sure. almost all of which have completely crashed and burned at least economically. So they were just like, there's no way. Um, and, uh, so we knew we could never do an anthological show. And so we knew we had to have some version of a continuation of characters, but then I, I just, I, I just thought you can't two, two big things that happen, at least in the original trilogy that Asimov has is the empire falls off screen, which just as a streaming show or television show isn't dramatic. And, and the other thing that happens is that the second foundation in the original trilogy just 
is formed completely off screen and is literally sort of like a deus ex machina that shows up late in the game. And, and for obvious reasons, neither of those were going to work in an adaptation. So the, um, and then the other thing, which is just practical is you're doing these big giant shows and you're hiring cast and you want to ensure that they stick around from season to season. So there needs to be some continuity. Um, and so that's how we let that, that, necessity led us to the idea of the genetic dynasty. And so that even though the three emperors were, you know, ostensibly different characters from season to season or from episode to episode, the, the audience would relate to them emotionally in some ways as, as, as the same face. And that, that, um, and so that allowed us at least for, you know, what will be the first few seasons to put a face to the empire and to invest in it emotionally. But then it also led to so many of the things that you guys were talking about on the show, all these in- incredible nature versus nurture stories that is just this beautiful and strange and messed up dynamic that I've just never seen before really on a show. And, and then I think an extension of that was pulling Demerzel in from the prequels um, who then is their eternal minder, uh, mommy, mommy, governess, what have you. And, you know, Asimov has always in his works, um, a lot of his robots have are very soulful. Mm-hmm. And, and it was interesting as well, because so that at least in terms of the empire and Demerzel, that has allowed us in a way to have these effectively immortal characters that we could be telling these stories with. And so, that that was a, just a major aha experience and and then like i said there's another one that i can't reveal yet and 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 maybe if it, maybe this goes okay maybe we can do an after season one and we can talk about we'll see I, yeah, yeah. that would be that'd be fascinating that'd be great so, so do you think of these things more from a storytelling standpoint when you're developing concepts like the the clone dynasty um or are there some things that you think of from just, hey, this would be cool technology sort of perspective? I'm all, for me, I started out as a writer. It's always story first. And then as a filmmaker, there's sort of practical considerations. Um, but it's, it's, always, it's always story. It's always what's, what makes sense. I, um, it has to be story driven. They are... You know, I think you guys invoked the rule of cool at some point, which I occasionally do, but I I never come from a place of, hey, wouldn't it be cool to do this? And then let's figure out a way to back into it. I, I really come from what are the themes are that we're exploring? What, what's fundamental to this character? It, it's always story first. How did you, so one of the things I'm fascinated with in, in movie making and filmmaking and TV making is the, the breaking, the, the act of like breaking a story, you know, you've got it. Like, how do I ch- chunk this out into 10, 10 episode chunks to, to most effectively tell it? I was wondering, um, like, how do you make decisions? Like there had to be some version of the story where you just told kind of Gail's story. You, you began at the beginning with the, you know, stuff on Cinex kind of going sideways and, and her disillusion of the faith and, than how that kind of propelled her into Harry's orbit. And, but instead you told a very truncated version of that in, in episode one and then came back in episode five. How, how, how do you kind of like make the decisions about which of those lot. would be more effective yeah. or interesting? Yeah. I, and I know I'm going to not, I'm going to try not to make all of my answers be really long winded. So <laughs> um, what the people are here for. Yeah. So, so there's a couple of considerations and and one of them is, is, is storytelling. One of them is practical. There's three answers. So one is I like to work on the kind of show that I want to watch. And so I, I like sometimes playing around with unreliable narratives uh, or narrators. And sometimes I like presenting something in one way and letting the audience sit with that for a while and, and then turning it on its head or revealing that there's more to the story than we realize. That's just my personal preference for storytelling. I also think, I also sometimes, not that every episode has to have a cliffhanger and 
believe it or not, not every episode of this season has a cliffhanger, although most of them have so far. And um, sometimes I just like a cliffhanger. And, 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 and Game of Thrones started this, but I, sometimes I like going dark on a character for an episode or a storyline. Some of the audience may not like that. I, I like that. I think that's interesting sometimes to leave a character in a certain place especially when you're telling a story that's so sprawling where you've got three or four different storylines. I think it's valid to leave a character here and then come back to them an episode or two later. I understand that some of the audience has been frustrated with us doing that in this show. I would also say that there are two uh, practical considerations that have nothing to do with storytelling. The first is some of our actors, we have, we have deal, they, we only have them for six out of 10 episodes. Like literally that's how many episodes we can do with them for a variety of reasons. We didn't have enough money or they're not available. And so some of them, we literally can't put them in, in every episode, no matter how much we might want to. And there are some storylines or characters where I would have put them in more, but we can't. So then we have to figure out, okay, We've got this actor for X amount. Okay, I guess we're going to go dark on them. for. I mean, sometimes literally it comes down to that and has nothing to do with my preference. Even though we have a lot of money on the show, there are some things that are out of our hand that have just nothing to do with storytelling considerations. Another one that's odd, that's just interesting is um, I'm really curious, I don't know, a few months from now after the new year, what the experience of people that watch the show, that binge the show is like versus watching it from week to week. And I'm, I'm just curious and we'll have to talk to people that we know that don't know the show, what that experience is like. So, so a person's tolerance for us going dark on a character for an episode may be very different if they know that they can watch three in a row or they know that they can watch, you know, another episode the next day versus something coming out week to week. And then some people have complained, well, why isn't this show just dropping all at once? That's way above my pay grade, right? Because that's all about like Netflix is deciding to do this or they're deciding right. to do that. Or, and like, th- th- I have no control over that. But, but I will say from Apple, their personal experience was that, because they've been experimenting with how they release stuff, is that their most successful shows so far have dropped weekly and uh-huh. slowly the audience is built. And that's been their success because we debated how many of foundation to drop. And they said, we can show you the numbers mm-hmm. on how our stuff is built, where we tried it with, we're dropping three and doing this and doing that. And we're like, the most successful has been this. And so and again, it wasn't my, wasn't my call. And it may frustrate people that they have to wait, but then you could also argue that that means they're into it. So it's super long-winded answer. Sorry, but those are all the things. Well, that's the same thing that we've seen with our podcast is when we have a show that we're covering that's a binge show, like a Stranger Things or something, not all of the episodes get the same traffic as the first and the last episode. Right. Um, And that just makes sense because especially with television shows, if you drop everything... It's going to be around for a week or two, maybe three if you're lucky. And then and no one's over. talking about it, right? Because the next right. show has dropped. So, yeah, that, that makes a, a lot of sense uh, to me. Harder to build the audience. There's, there's another tack on consideration, which is this show takes a really long time to make, right? Mm-hmm. Or like a really long time. It actually takes close to two years to make a season. Now, we're not going to, in success, release a show a season every two years, which is why we had to write the scripts at least. It wasn't a foregone conclusion that season two was going to happen, but the scripts were written a while ago, right? Huh, and okay. um, if it takes a long time to make a season, you don't want to just go, blah, here it is. You want to at least get two months out of it. <laughs> For <know>? sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Anyway, um, that's kind of like how the sausage is made, but 
Yeah, no, that's something that's where we debate all the time, which is better binge or weekly. And it seems like more and more the answer, if you're a fan that likes to have water cooler conversations about something or want to see your favorite show grow an audience, it's weekly. You, you might well, want to binge it, but it's it's better for I the also show. As a fan, I, I think if a show drops all at once and you're someone that's coming to it a week or a month later, it, I find it annoying because there's more opportunity for it to be spoiled. 100 percent. 100 percent. Yeah. Um, I was curious because, you know, some things when you're talking about the sci-fi, you know, the scale, beg, you know, this beggars the human imagination. Anytime you're talking about Galactic Empire, I remember right. when I was a boy, like, is they're talking about the Imperial Starfleet as a thousand Star Destroyers? That sounds like a lot. Like, my God, how many Star Destroyers do you need? But then the Empire is supposed to have a million worlds. So it's like, right. hmm, that seems a small number. I was wondering how you guys settled on the number eight trillion for all souls in the Milky Way galaxy. Was that like any back and forth or did you just like pick a big number or was there any like back of the envelope calculations or did that just seem big? <laughs> we, um, cause it kind of works as a loose model for earth. I noticed that too. It, like it we does. have roughly it eight does. billion. It, yeah. Yeah. It does. But, but then you think, but in terms of the galaxy, that seems like a small number. Right. But and then I also think so I'll tell you, we arrived at it in in a couple of ways. We do have science advisors. The bummer with COVID of it all was they were on in the beginning and then this show was getting made shot out of order over the course of two and a half years. And the science advisors weren't around. It was just it was very hard to always keep track. And and spoiler, we there may be some screw ups here or there, there, you know what I mean? That, have, that we've tried our best, but there probably are some. But I think in Aswan's original book, he mentioned quadrillion or quintillion. And it's funny because we were banding that around, knowing that if the show was going to work, it would have to work for non-geek audience, you know, right. um, not the tiny sliver. And I'm not dis- dissing the books at all. I, I adore the books. But the, the amount of our audience that have read the books is such a tiny fraction as to be completely negligible for the success of the show. Mm-hmm. And, and we were talking to people that weren't, hadn't read the books that weren't science fiction fans, and they were like, I can understand a trillion because people talk about like Biden's package is a trillion, okay. right? Sure, sure. But a, what a quintillion? That just seems like so whatever that I can't even. I, I couldn't tell yeah. you if that how much bigger than a trillion so, that is. So like some I have of to it, look it up. <laughs> some of it was just practical, but the, the other thing that I wanted to point out, which maybe will become more apparent, hopefully, in the success of the show, is there have been since we went to the stars, there have been a variety of in mythology extinction events that have happened. Sure, that that maybe 90% of humanity was, this isn't the first disaster that's happened. Right. And some of that we'll get into later. Okay. The other other thing I wanted to point out is that there are more habitable planets and more people out there than comprise the empire. Even though the empire is Mm. very big, there, there are a lot of planets that they're not on with people that they don't govern. Gotcha. Uh, I, I have questions always when I talk to people who are in writers rooms and I, I don't know how that looks right now with, you know, COVID kind of spreading everybody out. I assume it's getting more back to normal. Um, no, no, still really? not. It's over zoom. Wow. That seems it's really like, hard. It, it, that seems like about this. 10 times harder. It's it is. It's like this, but with like Brady bunch boxes and yeah. <laughs> sure. Okay. <laughs> Um, what, what's the um, this sort is of story of a man yeah. named Goyer? <laughs> <laughs> what sort of the um, the way that you approach that as far as breaking the story and then developing actual scripts? Do you does everybody pretty much touch every script, or is this something where you break stories and then you send sort of individual writers off to do a script draft? Well, I, I mean, I I've never been in a room that I wasn't. Uh, running right mm-hmm. so i only know how i work on rooms what i've been told by the writers that i work with is that my rooms for a drama show are very unusual um in that my drama 
room is more like a comedy room. And so generally what will happen is I'll write up a document, the sort of vomit document of like, to be anywhere from four to 10 pages. Like, here's just some freewheeling thoughts I'm thinking about for this season, you know, and I'll send it out. And none of this is set in stone. Some, not, not, some of this is mutually exclusive. You guys may have a million ideas that are better. It, it takes about six weeks to kind of break the season. We'll talk about it. I, I have a very, there's a pecking order in writer's rooms, but mine is very egalitarian. So like the writer's assistant can pitch shit. The, the, you know, the, the lowest rung is the staff writer and the highest rung is the executive producer. But I don't do any of that in my room. Every, anyone can talk, anyone can pitch on an idea. It's all good. <clears throat> and then we start breaking an episode. And in the old days, literally, like there's a whiteboard, you know, and it's like, okay, we decide where's the episode going to begin? Where's it going to end? What's the most dramatic way to get from A to B? Occasionally you get there and you're like, that doesn't totally fit. We'll push that thing into another episode. Then I'll assign the episode to a writer. And what I ended up doing with Foundation is everyone co-wrote episodes because I, I sort of look at it like a baseball team and different writers have different skill sets. Some are more plot driven, some are more, it just depends. So I'll think about who I think would be the most interesting combination for that, that episode. Then they, they write the script. They always get at least a rewrite. I'll, I'll give them notes. And then depending on what's happening, they might get another draft or, or then it might, kick to me and I'll do a polish on it, or it might kick to it like maybe one of the two senior writers. And then what we do, which is, um, then what I'll do uh, is if we've gotten to the end of the season, then I break up storylines when we're revising and I'll say, okay, you are doing a pass on all the scenes on Tranter you're doing a pass on all the scenes on this you're doing. And it, it depends. And I can sort of tell you who did what, but like, like I definitely touched all the scripts, but then other people did. And then sometimes I'll have people take a pass in my stuff too. Like I'll, I'm not, I'm very egalitarian. I'm like, take a whack at it. I, I can always say no. Like, sure. Sure. Go for it. Or sometimes I'll be like, ah, I, I didn't nail this, but you've got a better facility for this. You go for that. And then the final pass is, we've got a script that's been gone through like a couple of times and we sit around in the old days around the table now. And we literally go through it page by page and all every writer pitches line pitches on, you got to pitch for this. You got to, can you beat that line? Can you beat that mm -hmm. joke? Do you have a logic problem with this? The logic, and then every, and staff writers, every, every, anyone can pitch anything. That's the final pass. And then sometimes you get, you know, I would say on, see, on the first season, the show reflects, well, visually, I would say it reflects 95% of my vision, you know, um, story-wise, maybe 75% and 25% were sort of concessions we had to make to the, the studio or Apple or maybe, maybe 20%. Oh, many well-meaning, but, you know, there are definitely some things in first season that I'm like, if I had, wait, I wouldn't have done if I had complete you know, why did you do that? You know, in <laughs> some cases I'm like, cause I was told to, and I had no choice, you know, whatever. Mm -hmm. Again, I feel like these answers are very long winded, but hopefully they're interesting. No, I think the, they're exactly what people are looking for. Um, I, so maybe a simpler one. I had some questions about the Synax stones, the, the seer yeah. stones um, in this planet that is like run by like a universal cult. Uh, where does Gale go to get those removed? Is there like an apostates RS that you can, you know, like just, just yes. like, where, where well, does I, that, where does she go? I wanted to, and maybe this wasn't entirely clear, but like the model for Synax was more like Afghanistan or Pakistan in, in, in that it wasn't always repressive and regressive. There were universities, there sure, were, sure. they weren't always as technologically advanced as some of the other planets. But there, there were sort of seats of knowledge and inquiry and things like that. It wasn't always that way. 
And the, the and and yes, they were always spiritual, but the idea with with the seers is that it's like when the Taliban came in and then uh-huh. things got really messed up and then there was a purge, then there was a cleanse. So maybe that wasn't entirely clear, but the idea is, is that really repressive um, era happened fairly recently. And there's still pockets of intellectual yes, resistance, yes, like yes, her old yes. professor and okay. Yeah, so exactly, that's where she's exactly, going. exactly. And, and, and there are, are places that, are taking out the stones. And so the idea with it, taking out the stones is that, um, look, some people gripe that we even went back to Synex at all, but like, I wish that I could have spent more time doing more world building. And, and we, it's my favorite. We, and we will, and in, in hopefully in success, continue to do more. But the idea is, is that <clears throat> there are certain acts of heresy for which you get drowned. But if you remove the stones, you're a non-person. So you're you're out, you're out in the cornfield, but you're a non-person. We won't help you, and you're 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 literally not seen by God anymore or us. Uh, we can't talk to you. We can't give you any food. We can't. So there are people on Synax that have chosen to do that, and there may be these little pockets of people that have done that. And so by taking out the stones, what she's done because they've said you can't go to Tranter, you can't do is is she's exiled herself. Gotcha. She, she still believes she's a, it's like the difference between she's still culturally Synaxian and culturally part of that. And there, she still believes in certain concepts of the sleeper. It's, it's the seers that turned everything crappy. Gotcha. And so it was emotionally painful for her to take them out, but she also knew it was the only way she could escape as if she exiled herself. That makes a lot of sense. Uh, I was wondering in this latest episode, just to hit last night, you reveal that Dawn is the, the new Dawn is colorblind. Yeah. You know, in the previous scene where he had the elder brother darkness on his last day, when he, he painted that mural as kind of like a hopeful thing of like, you know, building again and coming together and, it was kind of like a like a scene as like an act of petulance or like immaturity to paint that over. Right. But are you now that we know that he's colorblind, are you implying that maybe he never even knew like what the meaning of that was at all? Like he never it wasn't like a conscious rejection of this message. It's just that it was like a colorblind test that he failed. I, I you're probably gonna hate this answer, but it's both. Uh meaning he yes, he was impetuous and I, I and I can't you're going to learn a little bit more about where his head is at next episode in episode seven. But, um, uh, but, but he also can't. So, so if dusk's job among other things is to work on the mural and instruct and instructs Mm -hmm. Dawn, there's just all this shit and nuance that Dawn can't pick up because he's colorblind. And so it's frustrating and, and he's worried about revealing it for we'll we'll sure, get into sure. that in future episodes. <laughs> so but he's literally he's a step behind in the development, not just because lack of interest or because the two the, the day and d- the dusk are sleeping on the job, but he actually has an impairment, like a learning disability. When well, this culture okay, so one of my through. one of my kids had some dyslexia, right? Sure. So I so can relate. It's it's frustrating, and then mm-hmm. they like I don't want it. I don't want to do that. And then some of it's covering, you know, and so it's, uh, it's kind of all of the above. Uh, I, I noticed that in the AMA, you said that, you, you know, you famously got this eight season, 10 episode per plan. Um, but you also hinted that you are thinking of going beyond not just the, the, the stuff written in the novels, because you've obviously played a little bit of jazz with that already, but you're going to go beyond even the timeline, like take the story further. Uh, I was wondering, does, does that mean you're actually going to expand the setting itself, not just like uh, uh, expand the characters and the world building, but you're actually going to tell a story that goes beyond what Asimov uh, written? Yeah, it, it, it's interesting. I, I feel like on one hand, <clears throat> when that came out that I had this eight season plan, people were excited. They were like, oh, cool. And on the other people are like, how dare he be that ambitious? <laughs> I, I don't know. But but it was also Apple demanded it. They they just said this is a big 
this is a big investment. Can you prove to us that I had to talk for two hours about where I thought the story was going? It wasn't just they were like, okay, here's a blank check. They, I really had to like sing for my supper. So, <clears throat> you know, when we were talking to the Robin Asimov and the Asimov estate, uh, the idea from the beginning was that Asimov never finished the story. He talked about never finishing the story. He didn't, he, he got, one of the reasons why he wrote the prequels is because he couldn't figure out or he didn't, he hadn't arrived at the right idea. He never finished the thousand years. He never got to the end. And that's why he went backwards first. And, and he had regrets and, and I had lots of conversations with his daughter about this. And, and I have some vague ideas of what, where he was thinking of going, but yes, the intention is if we're fortunate enough to ever get there, that we will go beyond what he got and get to the end of it. Cause I think he only got to about, please don't, well, you will quote me on this, but like I, I <laughs> people harp on like, Oh my God, he got it wrong. I like 578 years or 586 years into the story. He never right. got to the end of the thousand years. So I'm not going to tell you in what season that will happen, but the intention is yes, we are going to go beyond where he got. Which is why is, I, I, think I, I think on one podcast, you guys were surmising how future seasons were going to break down, which is why it's not really fair because you, <laughs> you, don't, you don't know how far beyond how many episodes your right. season could take. So, right. We were looking at the books and like, how could you chop these and interleave them? But if there's yeah. new material on top of all that, it's pretty exciting, especially no, no, you know, you get yes, to this, yes, there's, this there's, inside information you got about the mind of Asimov and where he was leaning. That's, that's fascinating. It is, yes, it, it, there's definitely further material, but, but thank you so much. I, I, uh, uh, yeah, I'm not going to get into when we're going to get to that, but, but, but I will say that we do, um, you know, audience can decide whether or not we like it, but we, we do have sort of an outline of what those last 400 years are and where we're going to. And there are even some of the little tiny hints we've dropped now that, are pointing to that does the does the pedigree of game of thrones here uh make you nervous at all we we all kind of know how the audience received the end of that show when they were just oh, sort of operating there, huh? with <laughs> you know a, a very slim uh net there so i think i think that game of thrones has cut both ways for us so i think that game of thrones has made this show possible because streamers have said, oh, my God, and not just because everyone wants their Game of Thrones, but because people are like, oh, wow, you can, really can do this epic with a lot of characters and have stories unravel over multiple seasons. I, I liked Game of Thrones. I, I've got my own theories about season eight that I won't get into here. Uh, and and um, I, I, I do try to think about how an audience might perceive an ending and which is why we put a lot of work into at least we're writing towards something. And so we may never get there, but we are, we have spent a lot of time figuring out the broad strokes of where we're going so that hopefully it won't come as a surprise to people or it won't feel like we took some crazy right turn uh matt asked uh, this is this either going to like be a fascinating discussion or it'll be 30 seconds we'll cut it matt <laughs> had a question for you have you heard of the math mathematical historian peter turchin he's been written in like the atlantic and uh, ny magazine have, have you are you familiar with the, any of the stuff that he's come out is with the last the, few years is this the guy that was talking about these mathematical models for civilization and climate change and whatnot yeah he was an ecologist that studied pine yes. beetles yes and he got out yes. of that yes yeah, yes yeah 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 i have i have yes and and, and and i didn't know him by name and 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 i believe i've read some of the articles that you're referencing and 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 we did talk about that in the writer's room okay because he even refers to himself as like the harry selden of the yes. 21st yes. century so. yes yes 
All right. Uh, interesting stuff. Uh, David had a question. He says, I'm curious about the relationship between Foundation and Dune, especially you know how Dune, the book and the new film might have influenced you and the Foundation team as you were in production. Uh, well, yeah, the, I mean, that's that's it's, it's wild how this stuff comes in like bunches. But like, yeah. you know, Herbert and Asimov coming down the pike at the same time. The film didn't influence us at all because, you know, yeah. it was written. The bulk of this show was written four years ago and the bulk of it was designed three years ago. And we had no knowledge of what they were doing or who did. So there was zero influence in terms of filmically. Um, I think that. When, when, when did Dune first come out? Like 62 or 60 or something like yeah, that? Yeah, mid-60s, yeah. Yeah, and, and so I think the first Foundation book came out in 51 or 52. So, I mean, there right. are obviously Dune and Herbert were influenced by Foundation. Sure. Um, so there are, there are obviously some kind of antecedents or through line. Or there is some shared DNA in it that just is what it is. Galactic Empire, you know, um, whatnot. Uh, and I think we try to, um, in certain places, just say, well, Asimov got there first, so we're not going to change it. You know, it's, it's just, right, yes, there's right. a Galactic Empire. And I think in other places, we thought, um, if there are ways we can stay true to Asimov, but, but maybe not go into Dune territory, maybe let's, maybe let's, do that and and i'm sure if we had four hours i could come up with some specific examples sure but um i will say people i heard some people talking about in that great scene in four where where day shouts at the statistician and he dies whether or not he was using some version of the voice he he was he wasn't the guy Mm -hmm. just had a heart attack and well, someone over. pointed that out uh, to us, and I forgot this uh, relationship exists. That guy he screamed to death was oh, yeah, the Baron yeah. no, no, from sci-fi. No, yeah, no, that was intentional. Me as a geek, because ah. I looked at a list of who was available, and I saw McNeese was available, and I was like, "Oh, we're doing that," you know. Nice. So that was, nice. and we talked about Dune when we were filming that scene. Uh, sure, sure. But that was just me as a geek going. This is fun. Uh, I got the lawnmower guy right outside my window. Aaron, you want to? Do you want me to keep going? Or yeah, I, sorry. I, I, I hate sorry. taking all the questions. I, but, yeah. I can't hear it for what it's worth. No? So. Okay. Well, okay. Yeah. I'll ask this it. one. Um, Sean wants to know Can you describe the process of the art direction? I guess in as much as you interface with it, uh, from like the costuming to the spaceship design to the buildings, things like that. I mean, I interface with it completely. Uh, the art direction, the way that it works is, you know, when the department heads have been hired, we sit down for a couple of days and I, I take them through we, literally a couple of days. We sit around either in a big conference table or a Zoom, whatever. And I, for about three days, I talk through the season. And I talk through the big ideas or the art ideas or the costume ideas or character. It's always rooted in character. So I say, you know, this is the kind of character. So the costume should be this or this is what this world feels like. So the sets and whatnot should feel claustrophobic or they should feel expansive or they should feel brutalistic or they should, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I do this big three day download. And then I say to everyone, okay, go iterate, you know, and now over the course of the next month or two, they have concept artists, they do mood boards where they're pulling stuff from, you know, Pinterest and magazines and stuff like that. And then they come back and say, um, and then we do a process called this, not that. So like art department or wardrobe or whatever, we'll put up a bunch of stuff on a wall and I'll be like, that's our show. That's our show. That's not our show. That's not our show. That's not our show. And then then organically so now i may not know well that's a more specific kind kind of architect or this or that but organically it'll start to hone in and people will start with sketches and i'll say what about this what about that and 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 then it'll get really specific in terms of story and then i'll say that doesn't work for the story so like it's a it's there's not a single spaceship prop 
piece of wardrobe or color that I don't approve. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's the font down to the down. To the, there's I mean, you know, it, even that imperial symbol, we probably did. I don't know how many versions of look development. There might have been 40 different versions of that symbol that we honed in and we honed in and we honed in and, honed in and it was like, OK, that, you know. I tell you, the jump ships like uh you regardless of where else the series goes like you guys have gifted like an entirely new visualization of faster than light travel to the science fiction community like i got out of my seat when i saw that thing fire yeah, well, up those, it's singularity and fold space for the first time it's just incredible well that was um well but also it came from story so we were talking about obviously they need to travel faster than light but I like the idea of, of folding space and inverting space. And I wanted to do something different than Star Wars or different than Star Trek. And I thought that, you know, this kind of civilization was at least a type two civilization, you know, the Galactic Empire. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, maybe type two and a half. And um, so, and, and this particular representation of the Empire are kind of very, very masculine and very sort of so i we i said i i let's i want that i want their ships to look like knife blades and i right. and i i drew on a napkin i said i want there to be a donut hole and and like i want to see Tranter for the first time through the donut hole and then i was like and i think that's where they should generate the singularity and and but but that but the design of the ship also works for the knives of the empire and like like they're you know hanging over planets like sort of damocles and so, but sure, it's all sure. kind of story driven though you know and 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 then i and even down to when she first jumped into space i said to bear mccreary our composer i said i know this is going to sound like a weird reference because i was remembering the crazy disney film the black hole and john barry's score sure. for the black hole and i said it'd be great if you could evoke john barry's score for the black hole when we're doing that because we're sort of doing up creating our own black hole so yeah we're all big nerds we all talk about that stuff there's so much of it I mean, too like all yeah, of the you yeah. know it's not just the jump ships it's 10 different civilizations and yeah well, the also, scope is impressive notice, if you'll notice in the title sequence it starts you know there's all that pixelated stuff that obviously evokes the sandigrams and the sand on the mural and the sands of time and all yeah all that stuff was intentional but it also starts with a black hole I mean, there's literally a black hole as like the first image you see in the title sequence. Yeah. Very cool. Uh, Blair want to know if there's an actor in the foundation that has surprised you with their interpretation of the character uh, and how is it different from your expectations when you casted them? Any surprises there? Wow. Um, I mean, Laura Byrne that plays Demerzel for sure. I mean, she was always it they were always meant to be a soulful character but the when she came in and did her screen test and 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 it was a scene that's in episode eight that i can't talk about yet that is a mind-blowing scene uh uh and i was at the screen test and and i was standing just beside the camera and i cried in the screen test and everyone there just their jaws dropped and we realized how incredible she was and so she Jefferson, it was always meant to be an important character of the show and is a character that that grows in her their importance as the show continues but when we saw these subtle little nuances that Lara could do it, it kind of took it to a whole other level. And so now there are all sorts of things that we've written or are writing where we're like, Oh my God, she can so pull that off without those three lines of dialogue. And yeah, I mean, she's amazing there. I mean, they're all great, but that, that was a real revelation. Yeah. She is great at like playing what's fundamentally and obviously an inhuman character, but has that, like you said, that soul study. It reminds you of kind of like what Brent Spiner is doing on Star Trek. Like, you know, yeah. someone who's not human, but is a student of the condition. Um, yeah. 
She, I, she's um, Robin Asimov's favorite character. Really? Interesting. Yeah. Uh, Ari wants to talk a little bit more about the, the score and the process of coming up with the music for this show. Um, what, what was that process like? How, how closely did you work with Barry McCreary? You talked a little bit you know, about this already, but um, did you just lock him in a room until he came out holding a, a prime radiant filled with music? <laughs> no, no. So, so Bear, I've worked with before. He's a friend. And we talked a lot about what this kind of score would be for the show. And because, because the source material is so philosophical and intellectual and dry, amazing, but it is. Um, I felt that we needed a score that would hold the audience's hand a little in terms of emotion, in terms of classicism that would sometimes evoke John Williams a little bit, sometimes evoke some of the more classical scores. And um, so we talked about that from the beginning. And then he, he said, well, I'm going to work on the, the sort of theme first, which is in the title sequence. And he scored the title sequence, which doesn't always happen. And, some, and we adjusted some of the shots based on the score and vice versa. And he came up with the idea that that, that tinkly thing that you hear at the beginning, that's, that's actually a computer, that's actually a mathematical formula that creates that prime huh. radiant theme. Interesting. And we worked with a computer programmer for that. And then I said, I worked with him so very closely and we identified like there's X amount of major themes for the show. And then he would write sort of suites for the not to any one particular thing. So there's Salver's theme, there's Gale's theme, there's Harry's theme, there's the Prime Radiance theme, there's the Anacreon theme in season one. And then I think there, then, then there's the Imperial theme. So I think there's six major themes. Oh, and sorry, there's Demerzel's theme, maybe seven in the first season. And so we would do different drafts of the themes. And I'm, I'm not musically oriented, but I, I talk about, sort of feeling. And so he would, it, fortunately, when I was back in post-production, I would go to his house, even in COVID, and we'd wear masks, and he would play stuff on the piano. And, and I would say, okay, that's, we've locked in that theme now. And then what we do with each episode is once we, once we picture lock the episodes, um, we sound spot, VFX spot, and music spot each episode. So we'll sit down for like four hours with Bear and his, um, music editors, assistants, whatnot. And we'll literally, we'll, we'll turn the, the temp music off and we'll watch the episode together and we'll say, okay, so what's the feeling you want to evoke in this scene or this sequence? We'll talk about that. Or, and should there even be music in this sequence or should it just be sound? So we spend about maybe three or four hours per episode on that. Then he writes a demo. I listen to it. I say, this works, this works, this doesn't work. And, and, and then it goes to the orchestra. Then we do that with sound, where all the sound team, we watch it and we sound spot it and we say, what kind of sounds are we looking for? What sound of soundscape? And, or what, what do you have to ADR or dub? You're correct. Sometimes there, there is a fair amount of dubbing. Some of it was the wind in Port of Ventura. Some of it was, you know, um, at, at, Certain people saying, because we shot in Europe, we don't want there to be an over preponderance of British accents. So mm. in some cases, we cast American actors. In other cases, European actors were doing British accents, some well, some not so well. And <laughs> so, uh, uh, so that's why some of that stuff was dubbed. Um, you know, and we do the same thing with visual effects. It's I, at one point, I added up in post-production how many hours we spent on each episode between sound spotting and stuff like that. And I, it's like 200 hours per episode. Jeez. Just wow. doing that kind of stuff. That's cr incredible. Crazy amount. No wonder this took two and a half years to make. It's <laughs> <laughs> been over Zoom calls. No <laughs> right? A lot of it uh, was. Visual effects, we were done in person because you have to look at it at 4K and so sure. everyone will ask. By the way, I'll go. It's up to you. I'm, I can go a little longer if you want. We actually are up again. We got a live show at one, so we have to oh, scoot. And we, we had tons of other questions. I'd love to talk for hours, but I thought yeah. maybe we close with yeah. one more. Yeah. Uh, what is your favorite episode of the season? Is it behind us or ahead of us? It's ahead of us. 
Really? Which one yeah. is it? It's uh, probably episode eight. All right. I haven't seen that one. I'm, I haven't seen that one yet. I'm excited. So that's the one you're, you're really waiting for people. You're kind of cackling in your hole waiting for reactions. I, mean, I, from. I really like, I really like episode. I, I like them all, but I like episode three a lot. Uh, I know some people, yeah, for some people it's challenging. Some people it's not. I like episode eight a lot. I really like episode 10 and, um, and some crazy shit happens. Awesome. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I love it in with the bang. And, and, and uh, like I said, hopefully uh, we get you back on for a season wrap up because I know we're planning on doing a final like after the last season wrap up. And if we get you back on to, to do I, some I, more Q&A, that'd be great. I, I, I think that would be. Uh, yeah, I think I think that would be fun. And um, uh, it was fun hearing you guys riff on a library of I'm not sure if it's pronounced Babel or Babel, but <laughs> I thought yeah. that was yeah, I've heard yeah, it. You really, see, I, would, I always heard of Babel, but I guess it is actually Babel, which makes sense because like, you know, babbling, you know. Well, that, but to, that may be a bastardization of Babel. Sure, Babel. sure. No, I heard you say that on the official podcast. I was like, oh, boy. Uh, he, you there really might, blew our minds with that one. There might be something there. Okay. I'm okay. excited because that's a hell of a, I was not aware of that concept and I was reading the uh, wiki. I probably would have to read the book just to kind of get a little bit more background on it, but man, what a fascinating concept to weave into and, this. And yes, there might be something to, I, I think one of your listeners was talking about the great man theory. So there's certainly mm-hmm. something we talked about in the show. Yeah. Yeah, sure. 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 It does seem like the, yeah, foundation and Dune kind of have a call and response. Like foundation is about the masses, you know, doing things and kind of being uncontrollable where Dune is about, a singular will exerting their force in the galaxy. It, it's, it, I know you got to go, but it, it's, uh, our show is going to play a lot of this sort of theme of variation, theme of variation, like, you know, law of mass action, individuals don't matter. Do individuals matter? You know, aid, you know, uh, can the future be changed? Are we living in a deterministic future? I mean, that, that's, that's the sort of jazz themes we're working with. Awesome. It's such a great time to be a science fiction fan right now. And, I think so. Uh, thank you for contributing to the, the overall lore and the smorgasbord that we have today. And thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. Yeah. My pleasure. Uh, David S. Goyer, everybody. Thank, thanks uh, for coming on the show. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE.